0: Uh, Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would open our eyes. And uh, Lord, we pray that as you speak to us, Lord, I pray that those of us who need to be encouraged today would be encouraged. Those who need to be challenged today would be challenged. Most of all, I pray that through your word, you'd form us into the people you want us to be. And We thank you for all that you're doing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, if you need help with a surprise, um, I'd love to help you with that. I'm probably not the best person to do that, though. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my mother asked me to help my da- help my help her with a surprise for my dad. Uh, I was supposed to go with my brother and pick up a TV, and uh, they're moving to a new house. And so we went out to dinner, and after dinner, we were supposed to go and get the TV and bring it to their new house. And then the next day when he was going and working there, he would find the new TV. So I had this kind of plan where I told my dad that we had to go and get some granola bars after dinner. And he bought that. That was fine. And so that's why me and Michael were riding together was because we were going to go to uh, get some granola bars afterwards. So that worked fine. So after dinner, we go and we get the TV, and we're headed to the new house, and then we thought to ourselves, well, should we just make sure that we're supposed to bring it to the new house and not the old house? So I called my mom, and my dad answered the phone, because my mom was doing something. He's like, oh, what, what do you need? I was like, uh, we're just uh, leaving the store, and uh, I want to know if you want some granola bars. He's like, oh, what kind do they have? I was like, uh, cherry, vanilla, blueberry, peanut butter. And then we're like debating about how many he wants and the prices of them. And so it was finally agreed that I would get him some. And uh, he didn't think anything of it. So we went and brought it to the new house. And then afterwards, I went to get my dog at uh, their business where they take care of animals. So I went to get my dog. And uh, I'm going to bring the dog out, and unbeknownst to me, I had a receipt in my pocket that I was going to give to my mom, and that receipt dropped on the floor right in front of the door of their business. And wouldn't you believe my dad found that. But even after, we, after he found that, you know, we were, me and my mom were just kind of still playing coy. We are like, I don't know, someone must have bought a TV. You know, and we're just kind of playing along with it, pretending like we don't know what's going on. But we didn't realize it had the last four digits of my mom's credit card on it. So he knew that it was us. But we still tried to keep it going, even though he had the receipt. And I think in a similar way, sometimes we try to fool God. And when we do that, it's kind of like, me trying to fool my dad, even though he had the receipt, even though he had the last four digits. And sometimes the way we fool God is by fooling ourselves. In a sermon on truth-telling, former pastor Bill Hybels tells a story uh, that originally appeared in the book The Ragmuffin Gospel by Brendan Manning. And in that book, Brendan Manning shares a story about how he struggled with alcohol for quite some time, and he was in years before he wrote the book. He was in an alcohol rehabilitation program, and it was like a 28-day treatment program. And he talks about how when he was there, they would kind of go around the room, and they would kind of each admit uh, the things that they had done wrong, and so people would go around and say and tell about their drinking problem. But there was one particular person, and his name was Max, and when it got to Max, he refused to admit he had any problem. He said, I I really don't drink very much. I've never really drank that much. And they told him, Max, you're in an alcohol rehabilitation program. You weren't just sipping Cokes. Now, be honest and tell us the truth. Admit to yourself and to us that you have a problem. And he says, I'm being honest with you, I never really had all that much to drink. Now, as part of the program, they had signed affidavits that gave the people who were in charge of the program the ability to kind of uh, contact other people to get information about these people. And so they said, okay, well, why don't we call the bar that's right near your house and see what they say. So they called the bartender that was close to his uh, office, and they're like, Do you know Max so-and-so? And the guy says, Oh, yeah, like a brother. He stops in every day after work and he has a minimum of six martinis. I mean, this guy drinks like a fish. He's the best customer we have, a prolific consumer of alcohol. So the rest of the people looked at Max. And finally he admits, Yeah, I've had a lot to drink. A little later on in the group, they asked every everyone, Have you ever hurt anybody because of your alcohol abuse? Max, then they went around and told ways that they had hurt their family and friends. But he said, I've never hurt my family. I'd never hurt anybody. Not when I'm sober, not when I'm drunk. I have four lovely children. I'd never hurt my wife. I've never hurt my kids. Never hurt anyone. leader says, you know, Max, we don't believe you. Why don't we call your wife and ask her? So they called his wife, and they put it on speakerphone. And as soon as they got a hold of his wife, he started to get a little bit nervous. And the leader says, Mrs. So-and-so, has Max ever mistreated you or anyone in the family when when he was drunk? And she said, well, yes, he has. It happened just this last Christmas Eve. He took our nine-year-old daughter shopping on Christmas Eve, bought her a new pair of shoes. He's a generous man. But on the way home, our little girl was sitting in the front seat enjoying her new shoes, and Max passed the bar and saw the cars of some of his buddies. He pulled in. It was cold, wintry day, 12 degrees, with a high wind chill. He just made sure all the windows were rolled up snugly. He left the car running so that the heater was blowing, and he said to our nine-year-old daughter, I'll be right back. You just play with your shoes. I'll be right back. He went into the bar and started drinking with his buddies. He didn't come out of the bar until midnight. And that time the vehicle had shut off and the windows had become all frosted over and locked up tight so she couldn't get herself out of the car. When the authorities opened up the car and rushed her to the hospital, she was so badly frostbitten that her thumb and forefinger had to be amputated. And her ears were so damaged by the cold that she'll be deaf for the rest of her life. The wife describes this to the group, and as she does so, Max falls off of his chair, starts convulsing on the ground. Hybels says this, he just couldn't bear telling himself the truth about what he had done. He couldn't face it. He was going to live the rest of his life in some fantasy world of denial about what he had done. Hybels continues and says this, I'll tell you why I bring this up. If I had time, I could pass a microphone down the aisle and I could say, what is that one sin that you feel so desperately bad about that you can't even bring yourself to acknowledge that you actually did it? The one that you can't bring out of the darkness into the light to let God forgive. What is that one sin that keeps you under a cloud of guilt day in and day out? Now, there's something that's tragically ironic about this story. This illustration was told in a sermon by Bill Hybels on truth-telling. And he makes this statement, what is one sin that you feel so desperately bad about that you can't even bring yourself to acknowledge that you actually did that? Did it? Last year, it came to light that Bill Hybels had been accused by many different women of sexual immorality and sexual harassment. This had apparently gone on for a number of years And yet he defiantly denied every single allegation that was brought against him. Even though the elders of his church concluded that at least some of the women were telling the truth. One of the elders named Missy Rasmussen said this, We believe that Heibel's sins were beyond what he previously admitted on stage. And certainly we believe that his actions with these women were sinful. She said, We believe he did not receive feedback as well as he gave it and he resisted the accountability structure we all need. He didn't receive feedback as well as he gave it. He's telling a sermon about truth-telling. And he gives an example of someone who refused to tell the truth, and yet he didn't tell the truth. See, when we notice that somebody else has fallen into sin, there's kind of two responses, or three, but two kind of negative responses that we can kind of react to that situation. Number one, when somebody else falls into sin, we can join them in their sin. You know, we think to ourselves, if that person is doing it, it must not be that bad. It must not be that big of an issue. And we get this kind of psychological encouragement to keep doing or to start doing that particular sin. But the other thing that we can do, there's another temptation that we have when we, we see somebody else has fallen into sin. And that temptation is to have pride to, to be kind of filled with pride because we don't struggle with that particular sin. And that works out great for us if it's, you know, say if we've never struggled with alcohol, it's we can tell a story about someone who struggled with alcohol and like, I don't, I don't struggle with that. Or if we've never struggled with pornography, we can kind of tell a story about someone who struggled with pornography and say, I, at least I don't do that. When it's somebody else's sin, something we don't struggle with, we see those kind of things and it can fill us with pride to think, at least I don't do those things. And and perhaps that's what Bill Hybels did. You know, he tells the story about someone who was an alcoholic, and for all we know, he never struggled with alcohol. He says, well, at least I didn't do that. At least I didn't lock my child in a car and have their fingers cut off because it was so cold. At least I'm not that bad. But the scary thing is we can do the same thing with Bill Hybels. We can look at his story and we can say, well, at least I didn't sexually harass someone. At least I didn't bring shame to the cause of Christ. You see, our tendency oftentimes is to view people's sin, other people's sin, with prideful eyes rather than with helpful hearts. We view people with prideful eyes rather than with helpful hearts. We have a tendency to view other people's sins as somehow inflating our own worth or morality. But when other people sin in the body of Christ, it should grieve our hearts. We're called not to, to judge them, not to bear down upon them. It should grieve us. It should grieve us rather than inflate our egos. When other people sin, we should ask ourselves, how can I help them? How can I encourage them on their journey? In this passage, it talks about restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. You know, maybe this means sending someone who's struggling a cart. Maybe it means praying with them. Maybe it means talking with them and processing the things that are going on in their lives. So there's nothing that has the potential to drive people away from Christ or the church than judgment and condemnation. And that doesn't mean that we just, you know, if someone's struggling with something, if someone is caught in some sin, doesn't mean we just say, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, you're, you're great the way you are. That's not what we're talking about here. But we come alongside that person with a spirit of gentleness, recognizing that we've all fallen short, that we're all broken that we're on varying stages of the journey, and we come with helpful hearts and helpful hands to say, I'm a fellow sojourner, I'm a fellow person on this journey, I am broken myself, but what can I do to help you? Can I pray for you? Can I talk with you? How can I help you? So that's how God calls us to approach those who fall into sin in the body of Christ. And as we do so, we fulfill the law of Christ, it says in the text. Christ came to the earth and he bore our burdens. He carried our sins on the cross. And when we encourage and help other people bear their burdens, we are emulating our Savior Jesus Christ and doing what he did for us, fulfilling the law of Christ. But not only that, not only are we supposed to come to others with helpful hearts, helpful hands, but we're also to accurately gauge our own progress in discipleship, in our relationship with God. Look what Paul says. He said, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, he's not saying we should boast about our accomplishments. He's saying that we need to examine ourselves in the right light, that we need to not have our comparison be other people. Look at what Jesus said in this regard. He said in Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Paul reminds us that we need to examine our hearts and our actions closely and make sure those actions are in line with Christ. See, our comparison is not other people. You know, we see somebody else sinning and then we have this tendency to think, well, I I must be better than that person. At least I don't struggle with that particular sin. But that's not our standard. Our standard is the life of Christ. And we look to Him and we see how do we fall in relationship to His life. And we all know that we fall short of that standard. So examine ourselves in the light of Christ, in light of the law of Christ. But then Paul goes on to say, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So here's what this passage shows us. This passage shows us that we can't fool God. God blesses spirit living and punishes fleshly living. We can't fool God. God blesses spirit living and punishes fleshly living. We can't deceive Him. We can't compare ourselves to other people and say, I'm doing a little bit better than this person who's maybe a little bit farther down the road. God blesses spirit living. He punishes and disciplines fleshly living. See, when we live sinful fleshly lives, our lives are filled with corruption. You know, and you go into situations where. A lot of sinful choices have been made, and you can kind of just smell the corruption in their lives. You'll see relational difficulties. You'll see financial difficulties often. You'll see all these things kind of crumbling around them and kind of the spirit of corruption that just kind of follows their negative choices. Now, for some people who are committed to living a life of the flesh, that's the way it is. But for others who are living a fleshly life, not following after God, everything seems great. And on the surface, you probably think they're a spiritual person. You know, the sad part about, and sad reality is some of the most religious people that you will ever meet are some of the most evil people you'll ever meet. That's just the reality. And Jesus acknowledged that even in the scriptures. Went to the store the other day and I got this, uh, Big nice cauliflower. And I bought it, you know, was getting another a couple of other things, and this cauliflower looked really nice on the surface. But then I was going to check out at the self-checkout, and I go and I turn it over and I realize that it's all rotted on the bottom. And in the same way, some people look great on the surface. It seems like everything in their life is going well, but inside they're rotting. Inside there's corruption. And that's how fleshly living plays out for a time it seems satisfying nobody may even know about it and yet meanwhile there's corruption in their souls on the other hand when we live in the spirit sometimes god will bless us directly you know we might experience health we might experience financial blessing he, he could choose to do those things and sometimes he does that in response to our living in the spirit but sometimes he doesn't. And the contrary of what I said, that sometimes the most religious people, you know, are in the church. Some of the, most, or, you know, the e- most evil people are religious people. In the way, in the same way, some people who are the most righteous people that I've ever met have been people who walked through suffering, who experienced difficulty and hardship. And that doesn't mean that God has forgotten them. And we don't know exactly why He allows certain things like that to happen. It seems like the wicked should live a very difficult life. The righteous should live an easy life. But that's not often how it, how it is. Sometimes the most godly people are people acquainted with grief. That's especially how it was with Jesus. Yet this passage reminds us that the things we sow today, we will reap tomorrow. Tomorrow. Paul reminds us not to give up. He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's a few different moments in history that have been kind of pivotal moments in world history. One of those pivotal moments was June 6, 1944, or better known as D-Day, and the invasion of Normandy. Uh, if that event hadn't happened, if uh, the Allied forces hadn't won a victory there, who knows what, have ha- what would have happened. But the person who's responsible, the, mo- the person who's most responsible for that victory on that day, ironically, was not a soldier, never wore a uniform, Never commanded a single troop. His name was Andrew Jackson Higgins. And he was the man who was responsible for designing and building a small boat called an LCVP. And these were small landing boats that would bring troops to the shorelines. Now, he started working on these ships, even though the military didn't commission him to do that. And in fact, they kind of pushed back on him. Because during that time period, they only wanted to build bigger and bigger boats. And so they were interested in building big destroyers and battleships, and yet he still persisted in designing these ships. And these ships played a pivotal role in the invasion on Normandy because the larger ships couldn't get close to shore. And even though these ships were pejoratively called Higgins' boats because they couldn't sail that far. These boats were pivotal in bringing troops to the shores of Normandy. Higgins saw what the Navy couldn't see. After crossing the English Channel, larger ships would not be able to get troops close to shore. And without these small ships to get them to shore, who knows what would have happened in this battle. This was so significant that 20 years after D-Day. President Dwight Eisenhower casually told writer Stephen Ambrose, "Higgins is the man who won the war for us." This was a man who was rejected by his peers. People probably thought he was crazy and foolish to want to build these small little ships rather than big destroyers. He might have questioned himself, wondered if the things he were doing, he was doing were worthwhile. And yet he persisted in doing them. And in the end, he was awarded the affirmation of the President of the United States. In the same way, living a life that's honoring to God may land us rejection. It may seem like our circumstances change from bad to worse. It may cause us to question ourselves. We may wonder if the works that we're doing are worthwhile. Yet when we persist in doing them, we're rewarded with the affirmation of our perfect Heavenly Father who will one day say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We can't fool God. God blesses spirit living and punishes fleshly living. I'd like to close by reading a psalm by Asaph. Psalm 73. And in this psalm, the psalmist talks about the challenge of living in a life where sometimes... Those who do evil are rewarded and those who do the right things. It seems like they're punished. It seems like their circumstances are bad. Psalm 73 verse 1 says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the household, the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Can't fool God. God blesses spirit living and punishes flesh living. Let us go in grace and in peace. Let us go living in the Spirit. Let us go willing to help those who are struggling. Let us, when we observe someone who, is, who falls into sin, let us not look at them with hearts that are prideful, but with helpful hands, helpful hearts, to help them along on their journey, knowing that we all fall short, that we're all on a journey. And Jesus is transforming us as a people into the people He wants us to be. So go in peace, go in love. Have a great week.